On this week's Texas Tribune Tribcast, we'll talk about the House's big night tackling the next biennial budget, a repeat performance by corporate opponents of last session's bathroom bill, and the anti-abortion legislation moving in the Texas Capitol. But before we do, I'd like to thank today's Tribcast sponsors. The Texas A&M system, which graduates more fully certified teachers than any other system. Consider becoming a teacher. Learn more at weteachtexas.org. And the Texas Bankers Association, which represents about 500 banks across Texas. Learn why Texas banks are the heart of the community at texasbankers.com. Do I have to talk you a Do we have to make sense of it? Well, I know you're such a Hello, this is Emily Ramshaw here on Thursday, March 28th with the Texas Tribune Tribcast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by editor and birthday boy, Ian Mitra. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Ian. A reporter, Emma Platoff. Hi there. A reporter, Cassie Pollack. Hey, guys. Uh, and in a few minutes by reporter, Patrick Svitek. And as always, we're going to be taking your questions in real time on Twitter and Facebook. You can do that uh, doing using the hashtag Tribcast. All right, y'all. So the House had its big budget night last night. Uh, Cassie and Ian were there for the duration. Uh, these are often marathon sessions. What was it like last night, and where did lawmakers end up? Ian, start start us off. Yeah, if you were expecting a lot of drama and fireworks, <clears throat> Evan I was. Smith, you know, <laughs> Emily Ramshaw, you may have been a little bit disappointed last night because there wasn't that. But what you did see was it was still long as what, like 11, 12 hours. Oof. But you, what you did see was a lot of uh, lawmakers withdrawing amendments or moving them to a different article in the budget to where they were basically on kind of an, in the graveyard. I mean, you know, to me, the big takeaway take was, you know, Dennis Bond and the Speaker of the House really had things in control. He's, you know, as Cassie can speak more to, he was, you know, even before budget night, they were they were working hard with a lot of lawmakers to make sure this was going to go as smoothly as possible. And that was really clear. And, you know, what was interesting, you know, obviously the vote was unanimous. You know, there was across the board. Um, there was, you know, not too many. There was, I think, seven points of order raised throughout the night. Is that um, that's low for a that feels low at least in <laughs> yeah. recent history. Low for over three hundred <laughs> amendments that were pre-filed. Right, uh, right. Yeah, pretty amazing. Uh, so, okay, where do we end up? First, give me the sort of like cliff notes, the the high notes on what this budget looks like, how big it is, you know, what the big priorities were, knocking out. Yeah, it's a two hundred fifty-one billion dollar budget, which is basically the same amount as what the House. Uh, Appropriations Committee came through, uh, passed through. Um, it's still kind of dedicating $9 billion extra to kind of like the two main priorities of the session, you know, roughly $6 billion extra for school finance, $3 billion for tax re- property tax relief. So this has been kind of the numbers that the House has had kind of working for, you know, for a long time. So, you know, there wasn't a lot of drama. They stuck kind of their game plan. So, you know, those are the big things. Uh, there's also, they also passed a supplemental budget bill. I think that is going to be something that we'll just need to keep an eye on because there's some differences in Harvey recovery funding that are going to have to be negotiated with the Senate as well. Great. Um, so, Cassie, uh, on almost every House budget night, lawmakers try to push through really inflammatory measures. Ian mentioned, you know, we're so used to having, like, all these points of orders. Um, generally, they, this is the place they squeeze their pet issues through. Did they have any luck last night? Like, give us some examples of some of the types of things that lawmakers tried but that were either successful or, or weren't. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Ian kind of hit all the, the points that we wanted to be making here was that it was relatively low drama. Debate was pretty cordial. Um, on some of the more, I guess, kind of going into this, we had our eye on a teacher pay amendment by Representative uh, Raymond and then another uh, sort of um, disaster recovery, uh, undocumented immigrant um, amendment that had been filed by Mays Middleton, who's a freshman and a free, uh, member of the Freedom Caucus. Um, both of 
both of those amendments were withdrawn. Um, mm. And, you know, so we those never really... Those are ones really, you were expecting maybe would be fiery. Yeah, just, yeah. you know, because teacher pay is obviously kind of emerged as a sticking point mm-hmm. uh, just between lawmakers as, you know, discussions on that have progressed. And then also just, you know, uh, anything really related to um, immigration at this point is is a pretty inflammatory issue, I think. Um, and, and so, you know, we were just... At least what I was hearing from members going into debate night was that that could, you know, potentially kind of flare up as something that uh, could be, you know, divisive. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we, we, we didn't really see anything uh, come to fruition on that. Um, you know, I, I know that this isn't unusual uh, for, uh, you know, negotiations and trades to be happening on budget night. But, uh, you know, the House State Affairs Committee held um, a hearing during um, this 11-hour deal. In the middle of it, right? In the middle of it. Uh, they got approval and they met downstairs on the first floor of the Capitol. Super informal, you know, so I walk into the room, crowded, everybody's there, and they just start voting uh, bills out. And so one of uh, the bills that they had voted out was a bill by uh, Representative Middleton to basically uh, end taxpayer-funded lobbying. You know, to be clear, they voted out like 30-plus bills, um, but, you know, they voted it out. And so um, just, you know, interesting to see the back and forth and um, I guess the business that's conducted uh, as as everything plays out. Yeah, amazing to yeah. watch the sausage being made yeah. on budget night, yeah. Uh, speaking of sausage, you know, I think <laughs> <laughs> everyone's favorite budget drama example, right? I set you Beautiful up for that. Oh, wow. <laughs> we, we, I, pr- I promise we didn't plan that, listeners. Um, in 2017, we had, you know, almost fist fight on the floor over Representative Jonathan Stickland's um, amendment to defund this federal hog abatement program. And this year it kind of went down with very little drama. I think yeah. he found three supporters on the floor and it was kind of a cordial jokey debate as opposed to something that was really oh, almost yeah. bringing people to blows. So just kind yeah. of another signal of how smoothly uh, new speaker Dennis Bonin was able to handle this. Well, I want to ask about that. I mean, the night was really a test for Dennis Bonin. Uh, this was his first budget as speaker. Uh, how did he keep control and were there any signals to how like house politics were playing out over the course of the night? You know, uh, not to really contrast, you know, Bond and speakership to previous speakers, but I just, uh, you know, the conversations that uh, members, uh, you know, that I was picking up on at least heading into budget night were that, you know, Bonin was holding meetings with with caucus uh, leaders, with other leadership, uh, you know, that includes committee chairman and stuff, just ba- basically trying to get everybody on the same page and uh, whether that involved, you know, negotiating or, or at least just trying to discuss like what could these, I guess, potential roadblocks uh, be, um, you know, that that to me just kind of seemed uh, to be a pretty big deal. I think the the joke of, um, you know, at least at the beginning was that, you know, we were going to be out of there by 8 p.m., mm-hmm. which was um, obviously... A little optimistic. <laughs> yeah. A little bit optimistic. You know, we were out of there, what? Uh, around midnight. Around midnight. So, um, you know, still earlier than, than most. Um, but yeah, I mean, for what, it, you know, I guess... I don't know, just all the debates and if there were any debates, they happened definitely behind the scenes, uh, not to be had out, uh, you know, on the the floor. Yeah, it was interesting because, you know, in past uh, budget nights, you see a lot of parliamentary inquiries, you know, certainly more points of order. And you just saw here there was just more of a flow to it. There were certainly a lot of delays, but you could tell they were more of like negotiations about kind of trading off amendments. You're, you know, can I withdraw this amendment? And you saw those kinds of things. So you could really see that there was kind of a different uh, flow to it last night than in than in recent sessions. So obviously this is only the House. What happens now? What's next? Yeah, so obviously, uh, you know, with the House passing an HB1, the budget bill, it goes to the Senate, but actually, as we're talking, the Senate Finance Committee is kind of taking up their own version of the budget. 
And so, uh, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to have their own version that they're basically going to substitute uh, HB1 with. So they're getting that into place right now. And, you know, you know, we're going to prepare for there. There's always going to be a conference committee. They're never going to agree completely. So we're going to, it's going to be a long pro process. We're going to see this, you know, not resolved till May. And, it, you know, some interesting options for debate will be kind of like how much to pull out of the rainy day fund. That's going to be a big kind of conversation. And, and still, you know, we, We've talked a little bit about property tax relief, but we're still kind of far off from really having clear consensus there. Right. One early indication from the Senate Finance Committee this morning, they seem seem to have kind of upped the contribution they're willing to pour into public education. Um, previously, the House had been, you know, putting a higher dollar amount on that. And now it looks like the Senate is in line for the same sort of amount of money. And the sticking point, as, as we've kind of mentioned, continues to be over teacher pay. The Senate has in the past favored this kind of across the board $5,000 raise for all Texas teachers and librarians that passed unanimously out of the chamber, but seems like it may not have as much traction in the House. So that, that'll be one thing to watch going forward with the budget debate. Right. I saw Kia Collier, a reporter who's in Senate finance this morning. She tweeted, you know, about half an hour ago that the Senate Finance Committee has officially approved boosting public education funding by $9 billion, including $2.7 billion for property tax relief. So uh, that's, you know... That, that, I think, represented a concession on their part that's higher than they were originally going to yeah, go. That kind of smooths thought. the path forward, I think, is our sort of initial read. Right. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Emma, I want to touch on one issue since I have you here. Um, you know, we talked about almost every budget night that I've covered, there have been some kind of like abortion-related uh, legislation that someone has tried to tack on in some way, shape, or form. Uh, and I wanted to talk about, there are a handful of abortion bills that appear to be gaining momentum, uh, particularly in the Senate. Um, and I think at least three of them have been deemed priorities by the Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Uh, talk to us a little bit about the status of that legislation. Yeah, so Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has tagged kind of this trio of abortion bills as priorities this session. It's nothing totally new for Texas Republicans. Um, one is sort of going to defund abortion providers. There's a deal in Austin, for example, where the you know the city has given a Planned Parenthood location in East Austin a pretty cheap deal. It might be something like $1 a year that they pay, and um, Republicans, pro-life people kind of rail against that as a sweetheart deal. There's um, a bill filed by pro-life Democrat Eddie Lucio, which is sort of about how much information women have to be provided as they are considering their options before an abortion. And provided like paper information versus being told something verbally. I always think it's interesting when that, that right, you get the pro-life Democrat in the Senate mm -hmm. filing that legislation. And then we can, you know, point to the bipartisanship, although I think it's fair to say he may be the only Democrat who ends up backing that bill. Um, and then kind of the most interesting one this session so far has been what's called the Texas Born Alive Infant Protection Act, which goes to these sort of rare cases that we've seen politicized nationally over the last few months where um, basically if an infant survives a, a attempt at abortion, sort of what happens there? Does that infant have legal rights? Are there sort of any civil or criminal penalties we can take against the doctor involved? And that that passed a Senate committee along with the two other abortion bills I mentioned. But I think what's happening with that bill in the House is almost a more interesting uh, question. Yeah, Cassie, fill us in on that. Okay, you covered that so, this week. So uh, State Representative Jeff Leach, a Plano Republican, he chairs a committee that was supposed to hear um, this legislation Monday morning. Uh, you have nine members uh, on the committee and, um, you know, five Republicans, uh, four Democrats. And 
you know, I'm tuning in, trying to get ready in the morning to watch this. And, you know, he, he gavels in and, and it's um, announced that there is not a quorum um, established, which basically means that, uh, you know, there are not enough members on the committee present to conduct official business. Um, and so, you know, there's like a little bit of like, oh, like what's happening? You know, it's and, Monday morning, and, right? Monday just morning, right? You know, like... everybody's coming back to Austin, home from their districts. And, uh, you know, so these four Democrats, uh, all women were um, absent. And then Morgan Meyer, um, a Dallas Republican, um, who uh, won, uh, you know, who had a close reelection um, in November, was also absent. And, you know, Leach was basically chalking that up to a flight delay. So you basically just had a, a lot of uh, uh, theatrics kind of play out um, for, for the next, uh, you know, few hours or so until As they the, waited and waited. And right. Waited. Uh, things kind of, uh, I guess, came into focus when uh, the four Democrats signed on to a statement saying that they would not. Quote, join this charade, uh, referring, uh, you know, I think just indirectly referring to Leach's legislation. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I think everything ended up being okay at the end of the day. The committee uh, reconvened later that day, this time with a quorum present, uh, Representative Meyer, who later put out a statement saying that he was, um, you know, home trying to get his kids off to school while his wife was out of town, uh, you know, was... Good play for all those women <laughs> voters out there who did not want him to uh, uh, support that legislation. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it was, um, you know, there was a lot of speculation as to why he was... Uh, not here in those did, did, early hours. Did the other lawmakers put out a statement saying why they were not there? Um, well, right. So the the four Democrats, uh, you know, Representative Farrar, Victoria Niave, um, forgetting the other two. Um, but, you know, they, they, they signed on to the statement basically. I mean, they never specifically referred to Leach's uh, bill, yeah. this um, Infant Protection Act, but they certainly were, were uh, referring to, um, you know, women's rights and... Uh, um, access and uh, access to abortion care and providers and and uh, saying, you know, we're, we're not going to be basically entertaining the notion that that we need to be paying any attention to this legislation, mm -hmm. you know, uh, trying to argue that it's already, I guess, codified in, a, in, in state and federal law. Um, um, a question that's coming in on uh, social media. Charlie asks, so, you know, in the budget debate last night, conservatives increased funding for the alternatives to abortion program to $90 million. How does that play into or fit with Dan Patrick's agenda? Were you guys around for that that debate or that vote last night? I'm not sure how it plays into Dan Patrick's agenda. Um, I do know that uh, that amendment, which was put forth by uh, state rep uh, Matt Krause, um, who's a Freedom Caucus member, um, a group that's typically been aligned with the lieutenant governor on on priorities. Um, they, the, the, the Freedom Caucus was certainly uh, trying to... Um, you, you know, uh, consider that a win on their mm -hmm. part, a win from, from, you know, the marathon budget debate. And how did they do last night after, after all was said and done? The, the Freedom, Freedom Caucus? Caucus? Yeah. I think that's a charged question. Yes. We'll wait for Ross Ramsey <laughs> to opine on no, it. No, but I mean, if you look at the Freedom Caucus, they pretty much voted for the budget, you mm -hmm. know, that it was a unanimous, you know, pretty much a unanimous thing. I, you know, uh, you know, they certainly, there was, you know, uh, Representative Jonathan Stickland, Re Representative Briscoe Kane, they certainly, you know, tried to, they, they did a couple of points of order. They were actually successful on a couple of them. Hmm. So, um, but there are, there's, you know, it certainly seemed like this was Dennis Bonin's night. From, yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, you know, and the, I guess just one last thing about the Freedom Caucus. They put out a statement after budget night. Uh, you know, their their new chairman, Mike Ling uh, from Granbury, said, you know, uh, this is a good step. Uh, we're voting for it, you know, act of good faith. 
uh, obviously there's a lot, a lot left to go in this process, you know, but, but we support, um, the budget, which, you know, it's just overall, I think, and this isn't like a new theme from this session is that they've just taken a, a, a way different, they being the freedom caucus is just taking, um, taking a way different tone, uh, and approach and, and how they, uh, uh, you know, choose to, uh, conduct themselves, mm-hmm. uh, in the lower chamber. Right. All right, well, before our next topic, I'd like to thank two more TribCast sponsors, the Texas Association of Counties. Local government is great, not because it's government, because it's local and connected to the people. Learn more at texascountiesdeliver.org. And the Austin Community Foundation. Learn how the Hispanic Impact Fund leverages the assets, resilience, and strength of Latinos to invest in nonprofit solutions at somosaustin.org. All right, uh, Emma, last session, as our listeners may recall, it was all bathroom bill all the time, and a whole bunch of business leaders got together to try to defeat it uh, under the umbrella, Texas competes. We have no bathroom bill, per se, this session, but what is the business community up to? So again, we see these sort of controversial proposals coming out of the Senate. There are two bills in particular that these business groups have kind of come together to oppose. One of them, Senate Bill 17 by Charles Perry, is um, a, broadly speaking, it's a religious refusals bill. Basically, it says that if you are one of the, if you're a member of the 65 professions in Texas that require an occupational license, you know, people like lawyers, people like um, social workers, that your license shouldn't be threatened because of um, speech or conduct you make as part of a sincerely held religious belief. So, um, LGBT advocates would call this a license to discriminate, right? If you're a social worker and someone comes in and says, you know, I'm transgender and I'm struggling with depression and you say, I don't want to work with you, I'm not comfortable with you, that's kind of the situation we're talking about, Um, whether that person would be sort of subject to any kind of penalty from the licensing board of the state. Um, The other bill is kind of a more interesting case. Came out of this kind of consensus business group priority, which was to override local ordinances in cities like Austin and San Antonio that require businesses to um, provide paid sick leave to employees. But that bill, um, while going through the committee process, was rewritten, and advocates are now sort of concerned that after the original bill, which which explicitly protected local non-discrimination ordinances, was, was altered to remove that protection, they're worried that now it kind of presents a threat for some of their communities. So those were the two bills that advocates came out yesterday to oppose. And uh, as you know, as we noted, they have some support from some really big businesses. You know, Amazon, Google, Apple, Facebook, and um, as well as a host of tourism officials from some of the state's biggest c- cities. And so what kind of shot do these bills even have? I mean, does the business community need to be coming out against these? Are they these pieces of legislation that are moving or do they have an uphill battle already? Both of those bills that we discussed have passed out of committee in the Senate. Um, the local sick leave bill that's kind of struggling, it's been waiting on the Senate's daily intent calendar for weeks and hasn't gotten a vote yet. And, you know, an important note is it's unclear, even if these two bills, which have been tagged as priorities for lieutenant governor, if they do make it out of the Senate, it's not clear what chance they have in the House. Right. So, I mean, clearly, you know, seeing so much motion on on these two bills so recently has these advocates and these business groups sort of ready to go to bat for them. But it's it's not clear that there's an appetite for this kind of hardline legislation in the same way that there was two years ago. And like in how big of a way is Dan Patrick prioritizing them? Do these pieces of legislation rise to the level for him? Like, you know, how a couple of these abortion bills do? Well, he's he put them in his, you know, his top 30 list mm-hmm. of priorities. So they're on the top 30 list. Yes. And then there, he gave them low bill numbers. And he also gave a statement yesterday saying, you know, someone in his office said, everyone knows uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick is a friend to businesses. And 
these bills are just aimed at, you know, protecting religious freedom in the case of the Perry bill and um, protecting local businesses in the case of the other bill. So he's fighting for them so far. It's not clear how far that fight will go. Got it. A uh, couple of questions coming in on social media. Some you may know the answers to, some you may not. Uh, Cassie, since you were in the Capitol late last night, Lorena wants to know what happened with Ways and Means last night? Anyone know <laughs> oh, the answer to that? Oh, man. Yes. I guess that. <laughs> Good question, Lorena. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for asking. Um, so HB2 is the lower chamber's uh, property tax uh, re reform proposal. Uh, chair is basically being spearheaded by Dustin Burroughs, who also chairs the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, a committee substitute uh, had kind of been speculated for, for weeks when we were going to see an updated version of this proposal. Uh, started finally um, circulating around the Capitol uh, a few days ago. Um, and, you know, rumor had it that, uh, the, that the committee was going to vote it out uh, first thing yesterday morning. Um, so anyways, uh, Chairman Burroughs uh, gaveled everybody in and said, I know you guys are all waiting to uh, to, to talk about this uh, HB2, but, but we're going to do it after the House uh, takes on its budget debate, and that's just giving time, committee members time, to kind of talk through uh, this bill. Everybody um, groaned, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so they met after the... Um, House debated its budget, so 12.15, 12.30-ish. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, after a few amendments, I think most of them, if not all of them, uh, were, were voted down by committee. Um, the committee uh, basically approved um, a, a modified version of HB2. Um, Democrats don't seem to be too thrilled with the proposal. Um, some on the um, hardline right end of the spectrum don't seem to be too thrilled with it. But the committee did, uh, you know, voted out 8-3 to three with uh, the one Democrat voting for the proposal, and that was Vice Chair Ryan Guillen. Got it. Thank you for that update. All right, last question uh, from the Peanut Gallery. Donna asks, have we seen any topics moving forward so far that might ultimately trigger a veto? Have we seen anything? Has Greg Abbott waded in anywhere or warned against anything lately? I think he's being pretty cautious so far. You know, I think especially when we have these potential fights brewing between the two chambers, are we going to do school finance this way? Are we going to do teacher raises that way? We see the governor kind of being pretty careful to say, these are my priorities. I'm glad we're talking about them, but but not really getting his hands too dirty from what we've been able to tell so far. Great. Thanks, Emma. All right. Well, we've got uh, Patrick back from the campaign trail here with us just for a few moments here to tell us uh, the latest. Patrick, where have you been? What have you learned? What's the latest out with our uh, two presidential candidates from Texas? Right. So last week, Beto O'Rourke was on the road uh, nonstop. I believe he uh, went to uh, eight states in 11 days or in 12 days. Um, that was kind of his national tour after announcing his campaign about two weeks ago. And so he, you know, sprinted out of the gate and I think was really trying to send a um, intentionally or unintentionally a message to the rest of the field about his, his capacity to travel wide and far as a uh, newly unemployed congressman. <laughs> um, right. uh, and, uh, you know, I think also in the process sent some pretty strong message about youth and, and energy, which I think are, you know, kind of two underlying uh, dividing lines um, in this uh, in this race in some ways. You're certainly going to have some candidates on the Democratic side are going to be much older. Um, and so, you know, he picked up, I think he picked up right where he left off from the Senate race in terms of the kinds of events he was holding, in terms of the just pace that he was keeping, uh, kind of sticking with this very freewheeling, do-it-yourself uh, campaign styles, as we captured in, in a few stories at the time. Um, the question now is whether that's going to be sustainable in a national campaign. 
He was able to pull it off pretty well in Texas, you know, driving himself to campaign events, just popping in at the last minute into, you know, these uh, venues and everything. And, you know, if he ran, if he ran behind schedule, it's all good, you know, we'll, we'll make it there eventually, you know. Um, but, you know, now he's obviously playing on a much larger stage. There's a lot more scrutiny. Um, and so the question is whether he can kind of take that style national. Um, we did learn that he's going to be hiring or has hired um, uh, Jen O'Malley Dillon, a uh, former uh, top uh, Obama campaign aide, to be his campaign manager, um, which is perhaps a sign that he is recognizing that he's going to need to uh, professionalize this campaign um, in a way that he maybe didn't feel the same pressure to professionalize right. his Senate campaign. Right. So a lot going on, and then he's going to be uh, back in Texas this weekend for three big rallies. Got it. All right, and so uh, what about Julian Castro, who, you know, is sort of uh, overshadowed with um, with Beto's big announcement, but is still putting in a lot of the road time himself? Right, he's, he's traveling as well, and this weekend, while, while Beto O'Rourke is having his rallies in Texas, uh, Julian's going to be Julian Castro is going to be back in Iowa for a two-day swing. It's going to be a second trip to Iowa as a declared candidate. Um, and so, you know, he's staying busy as well, obviously not soaking up as much um, national media attention, Texas media attention uh, as as O'Rourke is. And the polling, you know, continues to show uh, Castro, um, you know, down in the, you know, 1%, 0%, 2%, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, he continues to be a, a real underdog in, in, in all of this. And, um you know, <laughs> not, not not much has changed on that front. Right. I mean, he's continuing to work hard, I think, and, and travel. But it's, you know, for now, he continues to have that status. Climb. Uh, tell us a little bit about what O'Rourke has planned in Texas this weekend. Is this the sort of, this is the quote-unquote official Texas right. launch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And all the, the candidates do this. Yeah. They find, like, you know, new creative ways to get more attention right. as they launch their campaigns. But he's he's billing these three rallies he's having Saturday in Texas as his kind of launch or kick a Texas kickoff rallies. He'll start the day in his hometown of El Paso. Then he'll go to Houston. Then he'll go to Austin. Um, I'd, I'd say expectations are pretty high for these events. I mean, this is a big opportunity for him to kind of reassert his home state strength, basically. Um, you know, thousands of people are expected at all these rallies. Uh, the Austin one is, in particular, is looking to be quite a, a production. It's looking like it may have the biggest turnout. And it's also being staged right downtown here with the Capitol as the backdrop at night. Um, you know, these are like the kinds of rallies that you're probably, they're probably going to have professional photographers and videographers out there capturing them for, for future campaign literature and for ads and whatnot. I mean, these are, I think, going to be huge uh, productions for him. And I think, as I just stated earlier, I mean, really an opportunity to show that he is the, the Texas Democrat in this race. Um, it's hard to imagine that a Julian Castro could get, you know, again, we'll wait and see what the turnout is yeah. like on, on Saturday, but it's hard to think that Castro could stage, uh, you know, these kinds of events in Texas at this point in his mm-hmm. political career. All right. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thanks to the Texas A&M University System, the Texas Bankers Association, the Texas Association of Counties, and the Austin Community Foundation, our sponsors this week. And an extra special thanks to Spoon for our theme music. On behalf of Ian, Cassie, Emma, Patrick, and our producers, Michael, Ray, and Bobby, this is Emily. Thanks for listening.